When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Couldn't be happier to be here with Brittany Spanos and Rob Sheffield, and we are going to return to a subject that was very fruitful for us a couple weeks ago and will continue to be fruitful perhaps for future episodes, Rolling Stone's new and totally revamped list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. We didn't get that far among the 500 songs. Let's start here. We're going to start digging back into the list. And let's start with number 22. And we'll see how far we get today. And number 22 is the Ronettes, Be My Baby. I mean, the amount of impact it's had on the way on vocal production, on like background vocals for so many pop artists, on girl groups, on vocal groups generally. Um, I mean, that song has had incredible legs for for decades now. Now, Rob, how important to the sort of afterlife of the song was its appearance in Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets? Be My Baby is the ultimate time traveling song. The way it was used in Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets, very similar to how it was used in Dirty Dancing. The beat that kicks off the story, an an epic story. And and something about that beat, that Hal Blaine beat, it cues an epic story. And with teenage Ronnie Spector belting it, it's just the perfect combination of adult precision and teen enthusiasm. I think that's why it's a timeless song that lights up any, any room and has inspired so many of the other songs at the top of this list. It is super interesting to me if we're talking about the afterlife and influence of this song and of girl groups in general, how that thread was picked up in the 70s, often by male artists. Johnny Marr talks about pulling from that stuff for the Smiths and and, and even in his own songwriting and obviously uh, showing up very soon on the list with his own girl group influence stuff, Bruce Springsteen. And a million other people started to turn back to that as an influence. The the Ramones, obviously. It's also, it's sort of that, the nostalgia cycle. It it was just old enough to seem fresh at that point in the 70s. And it's also like the oldies radio station format was starting to pop and it was starting to, people were being exposed to that. That's something I heard from Steve Van Zandt, actually, is just that that's around that time. At least oldies hit, you know, sort of the New York area in the sense of like 50s and 60s rock and roll and they were hearing that stuff and kind of rediscovering in the same way that someone now might rediscover something from their 15 years ago, you know? And so how do you see all that? In terms of a song having an afterlife, you know, this shows up everywhere. You know, in the 80s, the Jesus and Mary Chain used it to start off Psycho Candy, you know, with that song, Just Like Heaven, boom, 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 the late great Hal Blaine on drums. In the same year, you know, the great classic legendary hair metal band Poison, they began their debut album with the exact same beat. You know, that was a song called Cry Tough. 
it defines the sort of the idea of this this beat and this sound and the emotion behind it. It really transcends time, but it also travels time. It goes everywhere. Okay, so number 23 is David Bowie's Heroes. If it were up to me, I might swap it with Life on Mars because I, I think that song is just indescribably transcendent, Life on Mars. Uh, Heroes, pretty great too. Uh, I was listening to it again today and especially, it's one of those songs where it also, the second half is on a whole other level from the first half. It just ascends, which you know isn't to say the first half isn't great, but it's one of those songs that ascends as it goes on. That amazing Fripp guitar line, which everyone thinks is something called an Ebo, by the way, which an Ebo is is this sort of electronic device that allows you to get infinite sustain on a guitar. But it turns out it was not an Ebo, although it sounds like one. It was actually just Fripp's miraculous use of guitar feedback. And I'm talking about that sort of singing the singing line, the, like that, that thing is a, a layered layered feedback that he kind of accidentally layered. He took multiple takes without listening to what he was doing on each take. And nonetheless, when they played them all back together, it created that sound. But what do you two think of this song landing quite so high? And also by sort of definition, I guess we're, we're saying that this is the, the list is saying this is the best Bowie song. I mean, I'm not going to argue with, with the votes on this one. I love this song so much. Um, I mean, if I, I absolutely hate hearing the the shortened version of it. You have to play the full original extended version, not the radio edit. It's so good. Bowie's vocals are insane and incredible on this. And, you know, it's just like a, I think that's sort of a running theme with so many of the songs on here is kind of classic love songs and sort of like twists on them sometimes. But I think for the most part, I think that's where a lot of what people are drawn to in music and what they like about their favorite songs. And this is such a great example of that from, from someone like Bowie, who is just like one of our weirdest artists to make a kind of weird Berlin era love song about, I believe it was like he saw Tony Visconti from the window um, with his girlfriend or something and wrote the song based off of that. I believe, I think Rob will probably (laughs) know the story better about it, but yeah. Bowie wrote the song. He was watching two lovers furtively meet for a kiss by the Berlin Wall. And he thought about how beautiful that was and how romantic that was, a sort of heroic, romantic gesture. And it was only many, many, many years later, he kept the secret all these years, that the two people were uh, his producer, Tony Visconti, and one of the backup singers. Very typical Bowie thing to keep that part of that great story a secret all these years. Uh, it was, I believe Tony Visconti was the one who admitted finally, like, yeah, that was me. I totally agree with Brittany. I think the voters called this one right. Number 24 is The Beatles, A Day in the Life. To borrow something that Rob would probably say, it is a, a latter period example of actual John and Paul collaboration, sort of, in the sense that Paul had already written the bit that he, the woke up, got out of bed bit, but he realized at least that it would work in this sort of empty space of John's composition. So it's the best kind of collaboration for them at that point. They didn't actually have to sit together at a piano to make it, but it still it still worked. They filled each other's holes and that, that was the kind of the best of what they could do for each other. I mean, just in terms of lasting impact, even just looking at a song that was released this year, Billie Eilish's Happier Than Ever is heavily influenced by the composition of A Day in the Life. And that's the, the primary inspiration for how that song was composed and constructed for 
her and her brother Phineas and to see like, you know, one of the biggest teen pop stars in the world look to a song that was older than even her parents. Like, you know, it's like one of those songs that's just so massive and artists that have such a continuous impact and seeing a song like that and and the top 30 that's had a big influence on someone just this year is important and also really incredible. And someone who had never even heard of Van Halen is basing an entire song off of <laughs> Day in the Life of the Sizzle. It's all you need is a day in the life. Also, love that it's right next to a David Bowie song, since David Bowie put a little bit of a day in the life in Young Americans. Kind of a, a beautiful sense that this song can inspire everybody from David Bowie in the 70s to Billie Eilish in the 20s. It's a beautiful thing. So number 25 is Kanye West featuring Pusha T, Runaway. And I always find, yeah, I always find something wrong. I do love that it's right next to Day in the Life in the sense that it's sort of like a day in the life. If you wanted to choose a rap song that's kind of in that category, that would be certainly in the in the top 10 in a lot of ways. And it's this sort of avant-garde one-note Philip Glass piano thing. The length, the, the wild experimentation, the fact that there's essentially a, a pseudo-guitar solo at the end that's Kanye's voice through distortion. He's singing a, a solo. And he orchestra. sounds exactly like Robert Fripp's guitar. <laughs> there you go. It, it's a very there specific... Very specifically, Fripp guitar solo that he's doing with his mouth. It's kind of brilliant. Kanye read the news today. Oh, boy. Um, absolutely. He can be heroes. We can be douchebags just for one day. That's right. Um, but, I mean, listening, it's easy with everything that Kanye gets up to to sort of forget why we were and are so focused on him. And just like, honestly, you can just listen to this song and it brings you back to why we care about Kanye West. Yeah, we talk about Kanye as a, as a genius, and obviously that's up for debate based off of recent releases, but I think that this song is such the basis for that. I mean, the song and My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy are, are such a, a perfect kind of example and, and pillar of his music. And I mean, just the way that everything about sort of the, the promotion of the song, the video, like the... New York ballet being a part of it and creating this like rap ballet almost and the way that sounds and the way that he's sort of digesting what the world thought of him and how he was coming through on someone who had been such a public enemy number one and also dealing with incredible tragedy in his life with the loss of his mother and um, the way that the world saw him and it's just a lot and it's really beautifully done and Pusha T sounds incredible on it such a great guest verse and it's just one of, it's, you know, it deserves to be seen as one of his greatest. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. 
What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. So number 26 is Joni Mitchell's A Case of You. Just before our love got lost, you said, I am as One of the many things that's so cool about that is if you look at the list, if you look at the top 50, that has got to be one of the most sort of naked songs on there. Everything, all of these songs are these amazing productions there's Joni with a dulcimer and her overdub guitar and her voice, and that's it. And there it is in, in the you know in the top thirty songs ever made. Just naked in production, but also the vulnerability in her lyrics and everything, like the impact that it's had on songwriters for decades to come, and that sort of uh, a very simple subject that Joni is able to make both like complicated and also just like the most evocative thing in the entire world. Like, it's just like the most beautiful, like I can drink a case of you. It's just one of the most beautiful lines in any song. It's one of my favorite lines of all time. And I love this Joni, Joni piece. And there's also an excellent Prince cover. And if there's an excellent Prince cover of something, that usually means it's pretty good. A beautiful story in, in David Yaffe's excellent Joni Mitchell biography, uh, Reckless Daughter, where Prince is having dinner with his hero, Joni Mitchell, and he goes to the piano and plays A Case of You. And uh, she doesn't even recognize it because he's transforming it so beautifully. I mean, this song wasn't on earlier versions of this list. It's a great example of how Joni Mitchell's moment is right now and how she's one of those artists who not just transcends her time, but she expands and evolves over time. People hear her now more clearly than ever, and she speaks to the moment more than ever. And speaking of juxtapositions, I do enjoy that one of the most bare songs is next to one of the more ornate songs of uh, Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run. You know, we, I could talk about Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run all day, but I'll say one thing that's interesting is what a, a real exception it actually is in, in Bruce's catalog. It's, it's both emblematic of what he does and who he is and also really an anomaly because he turned away from everything that he does in that song, throwing the entire kitchen sink. I mean, I think a kitchen sink is basically the only thing that's not on that song as far as the arrangement. He didn't find anything to do with the kitchen sink, but he found in early versions, there were like motorcycle noises and orchestra. Like he literally tried every conceivable thing to make his own version of a Phil Spector record, basically. And the wild thing is, of course, he he succeeded, um, but then turned around and never really did it again. But I'll just say that he gave me one of the most amazing quotes I've ever gotten when I did an interview with him for one of the anniversaries of, of Born Run. It was in it was 2005, so I guess it was only the 30th. Before you recorded a note of the song Born to Run, what picture of the thing did you have in your mind? I asked him, and he said, I had these enormous ambitions. I wanted to make the greatest rock record that I ever heard, and I wanted to sound enormous. I wanted to grab you by your throat and insist that you take a ride. Insist that you pay attention, not just to the music, but just to life, to feeling alive, to being alive. And 
what he said about why Born to Run still means something to, you know, he looks out to uh, aging fans at the concert who aren't running anywhere and are still singing with total passion. He said, I think that those emotions and those desires, that never leaves you. You're dead when that leaves you. It's just about, hey, you're going to take that step into the next day and nobody knows what tomorrow brings. No one can know that. And so the song continues to speak to that part of you. It transcends your age and continues to speak to that part of you is both exhilarated and frightened about what tomorrow brings. It'll always do that. That's how it's built. Sums up the song really beautifully. It's a song about yearning and a song about... Kind of a, a, day, a day in the life kind of breakdown. It just occurred to me. I never thought of the comparison before, but actually I'm not sure that would exist without... You know, it, it breaks down kind of almost atonally and then uh, burns back up. One, two, three, four. Yes, I think this is the highest ranking song on the list with a one, two, three, four. From an appropriate artist. So many people have counted to four in a song, but there's no moment like where that song is just buried in a swamp somewhere in the swamps of Jersey. And, you know, he just screams one, two, three, four, and it all explodes. Just a beautiful moment and very Phil Spector kind of moment filtered through the heart and soul of Bruce Springsteen. Number 28, Talking Heads, Once in a Lifetime. You may find yourself living in a shotgun shack. And you may find yourself in another... Who has not felt like that? Yeah, what a weird song. I remember the first time I heard it, and I was just, like, so blown away by, like, how completely, beautifully strange it is. And also, like, almost nonsensical. But I love it. Another song with that strong David Bowie influence. You know, like, right near Heroes and and the very Eno-influence-sounding Kanye West song. But... Uh, Once in a Lifetime, just a, a beautiful song that's kind of come to stand for Talking Heads and everything they did. People fixate so much on David Byrne, and of course, uh, he's so amazing in this song, but you listen to it, and what a band, you know? The way the rhythm section just, you know, like, pounds that over and over again. And uh, it, it's it, it's really kind of a song that gets weirder the more you listen to it. And I would point out that it's only three years apart from Heroes, also produced by Brian Eno, who even co-wrote Heroes. And it could not bear less musical resemblance, I would say, to uh, to Heroes. And it just shows the wild greatness of Brian Eno as far as bringing out greatness in artists. Rob, maybe you can give us some context on Remain in Light and this sort of creation of, of this moment in Talking Heads history. Remain in Light, uh, album from the Talking Heads at the end of 1980, almost exactly the same time that Bruce Springsteen was releasing The River. And it's an album that they had taken a step in terms of experimentation with every album, you know, so their second album, more songs about building and food, just completely different, you know, they debuted with their CBGB kind of debut. And then they went on to make more songs about buildings and food, which is more synthy. That's where they began collaborating with Eno. Fear of Music, which is just, you know, the great paranoid new wave album of all time. But they really expanded with this uh, very influenced, as you can hear, by Nigerian high life music uh, and also like very influenced by the sort of technological breakthroughs that were changing the way that music was made. So that they were at the same time they were making this David Byrne, Brian Eno made my life in the bush of ghosts, sort of a collage of sounds. But Remain in Light, kind of a, a song that brought the heads to their to their funkiest peak and absolutely cooking at peak strength. Nothing But a G Thing is next on the list. 
Dre featuring Snoop Dogg. Actually, at the time, Snoop Doggy Dogg. One, two, three, and to the four. Snoop Doggy Dogg and Dr. Dre is at the door. Ready to make an entrance, so back on up. You can listen to the NWA records, and there is there's a moment, I think even on the debut, when there, there's a moment when Dre kind of stumbles upon that sine wave synth sound that became the G-Funk sound. But it didn't really fully congeal until around this time. And that sound was everything. And I'm not sure it ever got any better than when Snoop was on top of it. And just, again, like the the effortlessness of Snoop over a beat at that time was like nothing I'd, I'd ever heard. Do you remember your, your kind of your first encounter with it, Rob? Oh, absolutely. And it seems really strange to think now, but at the time... Dre was very much seen as he'd done his thing, you know, like he'd already NWA changed hip hop so completely that it's, it seemed like as often in hip hop at that time, that there was one act to the career. So the chronic in general, but specifically this song, which, you know, was, was the single that really kind of showed that Dre had actually like moved beyond far beyond what he was doing with NWA. And this song like completely uh, in terms of its, bravado musically and, and lyrically, especially with Snoop on top. And it uh, had a massive influence on specifically that what became known as the G-Funk sound. But, you know, this song just epitomizes it. But definitely a song you remember when you heard it for the first time. I remember being amazed by it. And then Snoop Dogg comes on, you know, like for the first minute or so, it's just kind of like, wow, this is intense. And then Snoop comes on and first time hearing his voice and he completely changes it up. When I was Researching for this blurb, actually, the two things that I learned that surprised me the most were it was originally going to be a Boz Skaggs sample on the song. And also that Snoop recorded his verse from jail, like over the phone, which is so I like had no idea about that. There was like an interview that Dre had done where he was just like, you can like hear like jail sounds in the background of the recording, which would have to be done over the phone at the time. Um, I think they re-recorded just a little bit of it. But yeah, it's wild and just how effortless he was able to do it over the phone, which is insane. And to Rob's point, I mean, Dre developed so far that he, when I spoke to him a few years ago, he kind of saw his NWA production as almost his juvenilia. Like he didn't really know what he was doing yet from his perspective. Number 30 is Lord's Royals. I've never seen a diamond in the flesh. I cut my teeth on wedding I enjoyed this one because it really seemed to piss people off. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I guess the fact that it was so recent or I I don't know. But if you want to point to one that made people super angry, I think this would be an example of which, you know, good. Although Bruce Springsteen sang it. He did. It's it's classic rock approved. He sang it on a stop uh, in New Zealand and he changed the lyric to King Bee. But it's true. It comes Bruce Springsteen approved. But nonetheless, it made people mad. But it is a great song and, and it does. And, you know, the fact is it was a full decade ago. I guess it feels super recent to people, but it was a really long time ago. actually. Uh, and she's come a long way since then. I was genuinely surprised it landed so, so high on the list, but it's also because like I was really rooting for green light. I put green light very high on my personal ballot, which I think is the better lead single from Lord, but Royals does have a place in the canon just because we have, you know, it was such a big launching pad for her. This was like such a, a change in the sound of pop. Like it's one of the greatest debut songs of all time. Like 
it's introduced us like now to we've met three different versions of Lord as a musician, as an artist, as an an album creator, and this was the first one that we we received, and it was the peak angsty teen. I mean, she was getting comparisons to Nirvana and Smells Like Teen Spirit just in terms of the type of energy it was bringing to like the the youth angst canon, and that you know a feeling very like disaffected and like you know annoyed with how the culture exists and what the world looks like at the time um and it's such a perfect example of that and makes sense that people kind of saw it in that in that lineage so when you think about the way that the song was received and the type of incredible wave it created in pop music and cultural conversations generally and the type of launching pad it was for lord at the time makes sense that this is a song that many people have carried as one of the the great debut singles and pop singles of, of the last decade, and of course, of all time. Well, since one of our measurements is, did this song influence Billie Eilish? Uh, by that standard, <laughs> this, this song definitely 500 belongs. greatest songs <laughs> to influence Billie Eilish. <laughs> this, song de- this song definitely belongs in the top 50 of and songs that, that it, perhaps the top five of songs that, without and, which Billie Eilish would not exist. And there's no Van Hale in the top 50, so... <laughs> there you go. The song, as Brittany said, I was really surprised that this was the Lord song. If you told me that there was a Lord song in the top 30, I would have been like, all right, green light. I'm waiting for that green light. Absolutely. I, I would have bet one of my kidneys that green light was the Lord song that was going to make the top 30. And I'm glad I'm not a gambling person because it was really a surprise to me that Royals is the song that seems to sum up Lord for a lot of people. Do you not think it belongs at number 30? I like Greenlight a lot better. I, it's it's funny because I think of that as more like the, the canonical Lord song that yeah. history will remember her for. I mean, she's going to do a lot more amazing things before she's through. But I, I think of Greenlight as, you know, that's her theme song, I, I guess, is the way I hear it. Well, it's really interesting because, like, Runaway is a sort of connoisseur's smart pick for a Kanye song. The equivalent would be Greenlight. And so it's interesting when, which songs sort of connoisseurs take wins and which and which songs the, the sort of the broader publics take wins. And this is clearly one where the, the broader publics won. And it's a, it's a narrative thing, right? Like, it's, you know, you have an artist debut that young and they come out with a song like Royals, which is the type of song, you know, I think that there are, there are artists a decade older than, than she was at the time, like that, you don't want to make a song that good. Like, I want to like have a song that breaks the, the mold and like reaches people on that level. And so that, you know, that's a little bit of a, a difference, right? Where it's like Kanye kind of came onto the scene of fully formed artist and producer and already regarded as pretty brilliant. And by the time that Runaway came out, it was like so next level and so beyond even what we'd already heard from him. Like at that point, if you had told me that there was going to be a song better and more impactful than Jesus Walks, I would have been like, how? And then we get My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. Actually, looking at number 31, I guess I know why people were so mad because... <laughs> Because number 31, one worse than, than Royals, is uh, the Rolling Stones' I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Uh, it's precisely one worse than, than Royals. Sorry, Stones fans. Great song. Yeah. They have band. one higher. You know, they already have <laughs> Gimme Shelter in the top 15. That's right. Lord can win over them on a little Satisfaction, which, you know, the Britney Spears version is, is the version. That's that's the definitive satisfaction, absolutely. Yeah. She says, how tight my skirt should be. It's true. Kind of brilliant. 
Just, also, also, note that it, it, reminds me of my, it reminds me of my take that the Wallflowers uh, version of Heroes is better. But go on. <laughs> All right. Okay, I'm, well, I'm not one. going to acknowledge that take. <laughs> Ryan, I'm going to pretend that you didn't say that. There was one because, correct take in the last two minutes, and it wasn't Brian's. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It, it may but not be Brian, a sincere I'm a, take. I might cite <laughs> that, Brian, as the worst take of all time. <laughs> Okay, it may not be a, a real take. Song. <laughs> it may be a thing that I like to say to annoy people, but this is the same thing. That's what a take is, isn't it? It's just yeah. It's it's sort of my Colin Colin Robinson energy vampire take. This just it's just sort of a, a a vicious thing to say to upset people. But go on, yes, the Britney version is. You woke up in this fact, morning incredible. and you chose violence of the beyond violence. Beyond violence, like Brian Hyatt, the man who thinks that Heroes is better if you leave out the verse about the dolphins. <laughs> The song is better, but the dolphins, they kind of, you know, they should just, they should just leave out that part. And I love the Wallflowers. Rami Jaffe, the keyboardist for the Wallflowers, told me while I was working on the Foo Fighters album, he told me on the record that he personally made hundreds of thousands of dollars from the Wallflowers version because of the way the Godzilla soundtrack deal worked. So there you go. Uh, did the David Bowie version make even one dollar for for Rami Jaffe? No. And if, if by, and, by that standard, but Britney Spears had a Pepsi deal for the Satisfaction right. version for that's her right. cover of Satisfaction. So let's let's get the numbers on that one. <laughs> the Wallflowers cover of Heroes on the Godzilla soundtrack wasn't even as good as the puffy cover of Cashmere on the same soundtrack. <laughs> but something I love about seeing Satisfaction and Royals back to back is that they kind of had the same lyrics, right? Mm-hmm. They're kind of the same theme. It's about a bored teen watching the sort of materialistic world that, they're, that they can't be part of, that they're not part of, feeling that sort of sullen resentment. I absolutely love seeing Royals and Satisfaction back to back on this list. Very similar sentiments, just a few years apart. On number 32, Notorious B.I.G., Juicy. It was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine. Something pepper and heavy D up in the limousine. Hanging pictures and on my wall. I don't think there's another song ever recorded that has an a beginning or the sort of the way the vocals come in that I like better. It was all a dream. Like the, for sure one of the greatest moments in the history of recorded music. Biggie, another voice, you hear it and everything sounds different after that. I still remember hearing Biggie's voice for the first time. The first song I heard was Big Papa. And I, and it was so great that I thought this is, you know, just totally unique. I didn't know yet that he had so many other great songs in him. But Juicy, just a perfect sort of song. It was his first big hit and the song that really kind of introduced the world to the Biggie mystique and the Biggie virtuosity and the Biggie flow. And his whole thing about, you know, the whole growing up poor and, and making it rich and that he was able to sort of capture the, the high life in that very blingy bad boy style and his roots. It's just absolute, absolutely amazing song. Amazing song for him to sort of step out to the world with. And I think if you're just talking about rappers' voices just as a voice, he may have my favorite voice of any rapper. You know, he's like he was like a trumpet. You know, there was just something so spectacular and musical about his delivery. I mean, you can there's the technique and the lyrics on top of that, but just his his instrument. It's just my favorite. Absolutely. He brought the pleasure principle back to hip hop after a few years where it was really grim and dramatic on purpose. The West Coast uh, gangster revolution had kind of 
forced everybody to sound that way for a while. Biggie completely revitalized New York hip hop, put it back on the map after a few years where New York hip hop was sort of uh, feeling threatened by the, uh, the things happening in other parts of the country. And again, I love the juxtaposition. And number 33, Chuck Berry's Johnny B. Good. Deep down in Louisiana, close to New Orleans, way back up in the woods among the evergreens, the stood alone cabin made This is a song from 1958. I don't personally find its impact blunted at all. And I've seen little kids respond to it instantly. I think its greatness is self-evident. You don't have to sort of dust it off. It's just there. It still hits like a sledgehammer. The guitar playing is still dazzling. Everything about it is, is perfect. Guiltimate guitar anthem as well, a song that, you know, really kind of groundbreakingly in the 50s, just like begins with the song. It's a song about a guitarist. It's a song about how playing guitar is the most awesome thing. And then Chuck Berry proceeds to demonstrate it. It's, and like you said, totally timeless. I had a, a wonderful night with my nine-year-old niece. She just decided she was into guitar solos. And so I, I was like, well, listen to this. And we listened to Chuck Berry. And after three or four songs, she said, this guy must be a legend. And <laughs> I was like, yes, he is. He is Chuck Berry. We're all doing what we do because he completely revolutionized American music. Speaking of revolutionizing American music, at number 34, James Brown with Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. <laughs> Rob, maybe you can kind of just break down the essence of James Brown's innovations at that point. Because you can listen to earlier, of course, you can listen to earlier James Brown that is more conventional R&B. But he started paring it down to something much more special around this point. Yes. As musicians always say, he treated every instrument like it was a drum. And everything in this song is percussive to the max, whether it's the horns, the guitar, or his voice. And it's wild because when he did Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, he was already a legend. He'd already been doing it for years. Uh, he'd already had so many hits. Uh, nobody knew how many times James Brown would go on to revolutionize music over and over. Just astounding. Nothing comparable like it in terms of a career where an artist is constantly changing the way all other popular music sounds. And for James Brown, with Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, it was a song that announced that the first step, that everything he'd done up to that point was just a prologue, a really kind of audacious mission statement for him as an artist. And number 35 is Little Richard's Tutti Frutti. We did an episode about Little Richard not long ago when he passed away, but, you know, again, just like Chuck Berry, just like James Brown, if anything, it probably even has a little bit more ferocious force to it than something like Johnny Be Good. It still feels audacious to me, the way he was singing. Uh, and especially since it was it, it, it was a toned down version of a much dirtier song, as is well known. But it's, uh, you know, you could do worse. If you wanted to explain why rock and roll became what rock and roll became, you, you could do worse than playing uh, Tutti Ferti for someone. I do love having like, three of the greatest architects of rock and roll back to back on this, just sort of as the, a, a great point of everything that we know about this list, every, every single influence on every artist on this list, like comes directly from 
those three, especially when it comes to performance, vocal performance, um, you know, the way that the stage presence on for every great artist on here and so much of what makes these songs amazing. Um, and Tutti Fruity, especially with Lil Richard, like one of our most flamboyant and over the top performers of all time, such a huge influence on David Bowie and Prince and kind of the way that goes down to every artist of the last decade who looks up the, to those two. Like, you know, it all it all comes from Lil Richard. Absolutely. When, when Bob Dylan was graduating from high school, what he said in his high school yearbook, everybody filled out a questionnaire. He said his ambition was to tour with Little Richard. Oh, no, no, actually, actually, he said even better. He said to join Little Richard. He didn't even say join I Little Richard's that. band. He just said join Little Richard, which was to me was a more of a spiritual <laughs> aspiration. He just wanted to join that, <laughs> like not his band. One. Exactly. And, you know, just yeah that always stuck with me just join that's what we all want to do ultimately it's just if we can just join little richard uh, <laughs> number 36 the white stripes seven nation army it's kind of wild that you know I, it's obviously a great song i don't know if it's the 36 great song uh, 36 greatest song of all time if, if you ask me but it's certainly uh one of the greatest riffs of all time god's but gift to it, high school marching bands yeah i think part of it is just the ubiquity um has just driven it into people's minds you know you just hear that riff at, at like in sports stadiums and like god knows where else but I'm not even sure it's the best White Stripes song. In fact, oh, I don't think it is. Not. Yeah, I'm being it's, nice. It's not. But it's so a good, what a, I do like the song, though. It is like one of, again, the most recognizable songs. Like you can hear a second of that song, you know exactly what's going to come next. And everyone's going to sing along because there's like 10 words total. And like, you know, it's very, it's very easy to memorize. And I mean, that's kind of the again, the beauty of a lot of the list is like, it's just kind of like a great party playlist, a lot of it. So, you know, that's a song that any, any room you'll, everyone will immediately recognize it. There's no mistaking it for another song as, you know, as derivative as a lot of White Stripe songs can get, there's no mistaking it for another one. Again, this list was put together by a vote. And what that meant, and I think it was over 250 people, and I think it ends up being more populist and more unpredictable than it might be otherwise. And it also means that we, you know, we as, as Rolling Stone writers can't, you know, personally endorse each and every placement. But it ends up, I, I think it, it helps it become something to talk about. I think it's, it's really, really interesting that it ended up that high. And that it's, and it, it also sometimes makes you reevaluate the greatness of the song because, you know, it, these are people who are each in their own ways from artists to record executives to journalists who know a, a lot about music and come at it from a lot of different angles. And it, it's pretty fascinating that this song came up so high in the list. Not that it's not great. It is great. It sums up something about the list. I love how we have three of the absolute founding fathers, the you know legends from the 50s, Little Richard, James Brown, Chuck Berry, and they're sandwiched right between Biggie and the White Stripes. That to me is a beautiful statement of the reach and the expansion of pop music. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing to see them jumbled up together. It is in one of those uh, one of those juxtapositions that that seems to be designed to drive people nuts. It's like thirty seven is when doves cry, 
and 38 is sitting on the dock of the bay, which means that according to this list, sitting on the dock of the bay is, is two worse than than Seven Nation Armory. But that's how it goes. That's that's how the, that's what the list says. What are you, you going to do? What are you going to do? What's new to say about when Dove's cry? Let's not talk about how he left the base off. We know he left the base off. It's cool how it has the entire plot of the Purple Rain movie in the lyrics. I, I definitely am, am for that. And also, it has, you know, I will say one of the cool things about Prince as a guitar player and why it maybe took some people a long time to think of him in the Guitar Hero category is he would, in the course of this sparse, gorgeous electronic R&B song, at the, just at the beginning, put the, the most insane guitar lick you've ever seen and then very quickly and then move on. So it's just, just because he doesn't dwell on it, people kind of, but, you know, I mean, I remember Billy Gibbons from CZ Top told me like 25 years later, he was still trying to figure out that lick. I like seeing when doves cry right next to the white stripes because Beyonce's Lemonade would not be possible without those two influences that she made such brilliant use of, of Jack White on that song on her album. And that, you know, live on that tour when Prince had just passed away and she covered the beautiful ones. But when doves cry, I, I like that that is, it's not my favorite Prince song or my favorite Prince hit, but that really is the one you'd play for someone who'd never heard him and, and you wanted to say, this is, you know, what a genius he was. It is a notable middle finger to bass players to put the White Stripes and When Doves Cry next to each other. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, bass players. (laughs) Also, Dove's one of my favorite pieces of pop imagery. I don't know what a dove sounds like when it cries, but like, I know, I know what it sounds like when, when Prince describes it. Never thought too hard on it, but I like, I love the song so much. It's like, just such a, a fun, fun little pop jam from him. Not so humble brag. When I was in Paisley Park, we were walking through at the end and I heard these like distant coos and it yes. turned out that was doves crying. So there you go. My mom <laughs> cried because they were, she, they were like, these are his pet doves and they were like protecting his like cremated remains were in a box up up in the, the top part of Paisley Park. And it was like these doves like protecting it. And my mom got very, both my mom and I got very emotional. I'm not just going to put it on her. We both got very emotional. Well, now you've juxtaposed <laughs> that in my mind with my image of me walking through with Prince, hearing those doves. And now, <laughs> now I'm going to be upset for the rest of the day. Yeah, so, it's, it's, it's so beautiful. And also in the same way that Purple Rain has kind of became that theme for so many fans in the, the days after he passed, like those doves being a part of his his legacy and also, you know, part of his home now and protecting him. Absolutely. The whole verse about stomach trembling is just really, you know, part of the audacity of this song. I love your images of, of the doves in Paisley Park. That, that's so, so evocative and so poignant. This song really shows what a Stevie Nicks fan he is. So that was today's episode of Rolling Stone Music Now. Thank you to Brittany Spanos and Rob Sheffield for helping us dive further through our list of the 500 greatest songs of all time, which we will return to again soon. And we'll be back next week here on Sirius XM Volume, Channel 106. And in the meantime, Rolling Stone Music Now is, of course, a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast. Wherever you get your podcasts, Please leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. That is always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye.
Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.